This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Did you know that our feet contain one quarter of all the bones in our body? That's 52 bones, 26 per foot. Generally, we take our feet for granted. In fact, uh, some of us can't even see our feet anymore. It's not unusual for a person to take eight to 10,000 steps per day, and that translates to about 115,000 miles in a lifetime. By the time we reach 70, the average person will have walked the equivalent of four times around the globe. Yet we stop taking our feet for granted when they hurt, and it's estimated that 75% of Americans will experience foot problems of varying degrees of severity during their lifetime. Therefore, we thought we'd devote this podcast to the agony of defeat. We'll discuss foot and ankle pain with Dr. Daniel Rissman, an orthopedist and sports medicine physician specializing in foot and ankle disorders. Dan, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Sure. Let's uh, let's start with injuries and ankle sprains. They're pretty common. How might a patient develop one of these and how do they present? You're right, very common injury that uh, all of us will see frequently in our clinic. The ankle sprain is the most common sports injury out there. Um, Often it's with sports, a typical inversion, rolling of the ankle, inversion injury to the ankle when you're playing sports, but it can happen anywhere. You could uh, roll your ankle on a crack in the sidewalk or on a toy from your child on the bedroom floor. Very common to uh, roll your ankle, inversion type injury to the ankle and results in a sprain. Any idea what the most common activity is that might result in an ankle injury? Uh, Really no most common injury mechanism to this, but again, sports is common, but it can happen to any of us at any time, uh, Mm -hmm. just doing the right moment. The most common sprain that we talk about is a lateral ankle sprain where we tear the lateral ankle ligaments. And to do that, there needs to be some sort of inversion moment to the ankle joint Mm -hmm. and sometimes sort of rotational component as well but mostly an inversion type injury to the to the ankle and i'm sure it depends on the severity but how do you manage ankle uh, ankle sprains there's a wide range of severity what i wanted to talk about really is what we can do on the front lines with initial treatment of the ankle sprain and that patient will come into our office sometimes having a hard time putting weight on the foot the ankle will be quite swollen, usually significant ecchymoses about the lateral aspect of the ankle and down into the foot, and it can look quite ugly. Initially, of course, we want to get a good physical examination. Often we get x-rays of the ankle and possibly foot. Really, the initial treatment is based on our physical exam, and I think the exam is the most important. We're getting x-rays to rule out fractures, which don't always happen with an ankle sprain. But um, an ankle sprain isn't always just your straightforward ankle sprain, so we don't want to miss things. So that's why I think that the physical exam is so important, and I teach our residents that as well. So at first, when that patient comes in, the whole ankle's swollen, and maybe everything hurts. And so sometimes the initial physical exam is difficult to ascertain what exactly is hurting them, because they hurt everywhere. So there's nothing wrong with putting them in a boot, and I recommend a tall boot, not those short boots. ACE wrap for compression and initiate our usual 
rice principles. So rest, ice, compression, elevation, NSAIDs if you want. They can come out of the boot and work on gentle active range of motion of the ankle. So like working on circles or ABCs in the air with their foot, but shut them down in the boot for a time and bring them back. Follow up is our friend. And so put them in a boot, protect them if you want with crutches, but bring them back in a week or two. And then usually the physical exam is is a little bit more telling. Things have calmed down to where they don't hurt everywhere, but we can examine the things that really bother them most. Can ankle sprains generally be managed by primary care providers, or are there some that should be referred immediately to uh, an orthopedist or sports medicine physician? So absolutely, I would say the vast majority of ankle sprains can and should be treated by our primary care physicians. They're on the front lines. They're going to see them more often. And really, early treatment is best. So early compression, immobilization, and then active range of motion when it's appropriate is very important for the ankle sprain. Maybe to go back to some of the physical exam findings that directs you to, well, maybe you do need to send them to a specialist. So for example, I have the, my residents all the time, I, I, we go over this exam and an ankle sprain is almost always tearing of the ATFL, anterior talofibular ligament, sometimes a CFL, the calcaneofibular ligament. And those are structures that go from the tip of the fibula to the talus or calcaneus respectively. But almost always in an ankle sprain, the person hurts right at the ATFL footprint, which is at the very distal aspect of the fibula anteriorly. So right at that footprint, you're gonna palpate on that spot and they're gonna always hurt there. But then there's other things that we should palpate. So I have them palpate the distal fibula are we worried for a fracture? I have them palpate the syndesmosis. Do they have a syndesmosis sprain or injury or a high ankle sprain? Palpate the ankle joint itself. If they have persistent joint line tenderness, we might want to get an MRI later to rule out an OCD or an osteochondral lesion of the talus. I have them palpate the perineal tendons that go behind the fibula. Sometimes those get injured in an ankle sprain. You can palpate the um, sinus tarsi and deep in there is the lateral process of the talus. And so sometimes that's fractured and missed. We call that a snowboarder's fracture. A few other structures to palpate would be the anterior process of the calcaneus. So it's a little bit more forward from the distal fibula. That can be avulsed and have a fracture there. And lastly, I think it's important to palpate the base of the fifth metatarsal on the lateral border of the foot. Sometimes that's fractured. So once you've put them in a boot and shut them down and initiated active motion and ice compression and so forth. You bring them back and once things have calmed down a little bit, then you can palpate and, and the things that are most tender I focus on. If it's just straightforward tenderness over the ATFL, we treat it like a normal ankle sprain. But for example, if they have persistent tenderness at the ankle joint, I might be worried about an osteochondral lesion of the talus. And if they have locking, catching, I'm for sure worried about that. So we might send them to a specialist there where I would get an MRI and look for that lesion. And sometimes we can intervene with surgery in those patients, but the vast majority is a straightforward ankle sprain that can be treated with by our primary care physicians. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about ankle fractures. You, you've mentioned those a few times. When should we suspect an ankle fracture when patients come in? What, what red flags might they show? Good question. So similar kind of thinking with an ankle sprain. And oftentimes, our ankle fracture is what we think is an ankle sprain at first, but it's more than that. Usually if a person fractures their ankle and there's deformity, they're going to go to the ER and it's pretty obvious. But maybe what's more common to you and I in the office setting and for the primary care physician is that 
ankle fracture that may look like an ankle sprain at first and there's no deformity. So again, the physical exam is super important. They will have tenderness to palpation, really significant tenderness to palpation directly over the distal fibula, sometimes over the syndesmosis. And then of course, we should get x-rays in most ankle sprains, if not all. And, and particularly if we're worried about a, a more significant injury, such as a fracture. But most often they'll have significant tenderness right over the fibula. And then with an ankle sprain, oftentimes they can bear weight with no real issue. But in an ankle fracture, they have a really difficult time bearing weight on that ankle. I recall at one point in my career being told that uh, when you suspect an ankle fracture versus a sprain to ask for stress views of an x-ray. Can you go over that just a little bit? Yes, and, and that really gets into how are we going to fix that surgically and what do we have to look out for surgically? What they're looking for is, is the fracture unstable, number one, and therefore maybe needing surgical fixation. Or if it's stable, we can just treat them weight bearing as tolerated in a boot and no need for surgery. The second thing that they're looking for with stress views would be syndesmosis instability or injury. And so what we do in a stress view is on an x-ray, we get a mortise view. So a front view of the ankle with the ankle slightly internally rotated. And then usually the physician stabilizes the tibia and externally rotates the foot to the patient's comfort level. And usually that's enough to stress the fracture area or the syndesmosis area to see if that's unstable or unstable. If it's unstable, things displace, things shift. You can see that that patient should be referred to an orthopedic surgeon. Okay. Boot them, get them off of the foot, get them on crutches, but refer them to uh, an orthopedic surgeon. All right, well, let's change directions a little bit. Talk about an Achilles rupture. Um, I've seen this once and it was outside of my practice. I was actually playing volleyball with some friends and uh, one of my friends developed this and it was pretty obvious quickly what was happening. So talk a little bit about a rupture of the Achilles. Yeah, oftentimes it's obvious, but sometimes not so obvious. And let's talk about that. I think it's uh, a very good subject. The classic history or or story that that patient will say is, is you know, I was playing basketball, I started to run down the court and bam, I felt like somebody kicked me from the behind or I felt a big pop. More often middle-aged adults, the Saturday warrior maybe, but, and then they usually have pain right at that onset, but then usually the pain goes away right away. And then more than anything, they just feel a dysfunction or a weakness with the Achilles. Just like with the ankle sprain, with any Achilles tendon injury, physical exam is super important. And in fact, I think we can accurately diagnose an Achilles tendon rupture by physical exam. It's oftentimes missed though. And again, I think it's because we don't examine them. You get the history and you, you suspect an ankle sprain or an ankle or an Achilles rupture. By the way, the Achilles rupture sometimes is misdiagnosed as an ankle sprain and the, and the patient is dismissed with instructions for an ankle sprain. And, and we need to, therefore we need to examine them carefully. The tendency is to examine the patient when they're sitting on the exam table, but it's hard to reach around there and see what we want to see. So I find that it's most important to have the patient prone, lying on their tummy, to be able to examine them. And I have their feet kind of hanging off the edge of the exam table. And then you can look at the injured side and the uninjured side, and normally you can see a difference. On the injured side, you'll see swelling. You'll see a divot, or you can actually palpate most often a divot in the mid-substance of the Achilles. And if you're not sure, just go to the uninjured side and you have a good comparison. Next, I flex the knees up to 90 degrees. 
and you look at the resting tension of the ankle, normally with the, when the Achilles is intact, there's a resting plantar flexion of the ankle of about 10 to 15 degrees, but the ruptured side, there won't be that tension and the ankle will be resting at neutral. And then lastly, you do the famous Thompson test. And it's best to do it in this position with the patient prone and the knees bent to 90 degrees. And I squeeze the calf of the uninjured side. You see what normal is. And you squeeze the calf of the injured side. And you should see really no plantar flexion of that foot on the injured side. Sometimes you'll see a flicker. And the temptation will be to call this a partial tear. But I would say go into this exam thinking there's no such thing as a partial tear because honestly, it's quite rare. And if we misdiagnose as a partial tear, sometimes we do the patient a disservice. So go into it thinking there's no such thing as a partial tear. And if you squeeze that calf and there's just a flicker of plantar flexion, you think it's a partial tear. Well, actually it's likely a full tear of the Achilles, but other things plantar flex the ankle, everything that goes behind the ankle plantar flexes it. So it could be the posterior tibial tendon, the FHL, FDL. So you could have a little bit of a flicker with those other tendons intact, but the Achilles is ruptured. But use that Thompson test. Ultrasound is quite common nowadays, but and it's very accurate for an Achilles rupture, but I would say that it's not necessary. A good physical exam is most important. And then lastly, I think that whatever you do, the most important thing is to initiate appropriate treatment right away. Because what we don't want is for that patient to go walking out of the office with an Achilles rupture and follow up with his orthopedic surgeon two weeks later, because sometimes it's too late. In brief, surgical treatment and non-surgical treatment are both effective, but as long as we uh, catch it early on. So the first line of defense here, the first aid treatment for Achilles rupture would be to get him into a boot, again, a tall boot, with something in there to raise the heel or plantar flex the ankle in 15 degrees of plantar flexion. So sometimes you have enough heel wedges to go into that boot to do that. But if you don't, I've seen some of my residents in the ER take a blue towel, one of those surgical towels, roll it up and put it in that heel. Or you could take a sock that's wadded up and put it in that heel to plantar flex that ankle. But I'd get him in a boot, get him plantar flexed, get him non-weight bearing, and then refer to the, the provider. And honestly, if you get it initiated early on, surgical treatment and non-surgical treatment, both are highly affected. And some patients are not good surgical candidates. So that's why we wanna treat them early with the appropriate non-surgical treatment, get them off to a good start. What I don't wanna see is somebody coming to me two, three, four weeks after the injury and they've been walking on it and then shoot, we've kind of lost uh, an opportunity for a good result. All right, well, let's transition to some uh, more chronic conditions, <clears throat> things that uh, we commonly see as primary care providers in the outpatient practice. Plantar fasciitis is probably number one, and uh, I'm looking for some good tips here because this has plagued me for years as well. Yeah, yeah plantar fasciitis, very, very common, usually in the you know older adult population as we get older and heavier. I'm in that same category, Daryl. It typically presents as pain on the plantar medial heel. So if you look at your the bottom of your heel, you see the fat pad there, and just anterior to it and a little bit medial, that's where the plantar fascia originates. That's typically where they hurt. But the plantar fascia is that tight band of structure in the mid arch that holds up the arch and it spreads through the arch and all the way out to the toes actually. So they could hurt all the way from the heel all the way out to mid arch or further, but typically it's right at that heel. Typically that pain is worse with activity, better with rest. It comes on with an insidious onset, no actual injury. They will have often 
startup pain or morning pain and stiffness. So the first steps out of bed really hurt them. And this is something that, that we can all treat and it's important to get a handle on early. Surgery does not help the situation. There are a lot of surgical procedures that are done for this, but we do not recommend that. It doesn't necessarily improve the situation and there are risks of complications with that, that surgery. Sometimes I'll have a patient come to me that says, oh, I've got this bone spur that needs to be removed. That's the problem. That's actually not true. So if you get a lateral x-ray of the foot, you might see a calcaneus osteophyte bone spur where what we think is the origin of the plantar fascia. And in fact, that is not associated with the uh, plantar fascia. It's actually more deep to the plantar fascia. So if you get an MRI, you can see that osteophyte and then you can see more plantar word, the origin of the plantar fascia. So the spur is not associated with the plantar fascia and it's not the cause of the plantar fasciitis. And more importantly, going in and cutting it out does not help. What does help is a comprehensive non-operative treatment protocol. So sometimes we immobilize them in a boot for a time. Again, the boot is your friend and a tall boot I think is best. You can immobilize them for a time, but we can teach them plantar fascia specific stretches, which has been published, but dorsiflexing the ankle and massaging the plantar fascia stretching the gastrocnemia solis, soleus complex like a runner stretch. You can do massage and ice. You can take a frozen water bottle and roll it on the bottom of the arch from both massaging and ice NSAIDs if the patient can take that. And then if a patient has a lot of morning pain and stiffness, you can try a night splint and there's various night splints on the market, but it just holds that ankle and dorsiflexion keeps that plantar fascia kind of stretched out and at least not tightened up throughout the night and that can help. But People have looked at, do inserts make a difference or not? And a custom insert is no better for plantar fasciitis than an off-the-shelf insert. You can try that if you want. Good supportive shoes, but really it's a persistent stretching and icing and, and maybe a night splint, and usually it gradually goes away. Yeah, and I believe I've tried all of the things you've mentioned, and it seems like some are effective. And But then again, uh, it seems to take about four weeks if I use them and about a month if I don't, so just kind of comes and goes when it wants to. Well, and by the way, um, you're right, it'll come and go, but sometimes a patient has done all those things. And there are some things that we can do short of surgery that, uh, that if you've tried all those, it's been a year, you can, you can refer your patient to a provider that does certain injections in that area or high energy shockwave therapy. So there are other things that can be tried short of surgery that you can refer to a specialist for. I have had a few patients who have had steroid injections, and uh, that seemed to be effective for them. All right, let's talk a little bit about bunions. Quite common, but why are some painful or, and some are not? So that kind of gets back to why do we get bunions, and that's multifactorial. There can be genetics and development involved. So there can be that juvenile bunion. The child just grew up with bunions, and that patient will come in to me as an adult saying, I've had bunions my whole life. But then there can also be that adult acquired bunion where the, the, the person grew up with normal feet, but with time gradually developed a bunion. So there's definitely genetics involved in development, but often in our world, especially the Western civilization culture, shoe wear is a big part of that. Narrow shoes with an elevated heel can put a lot of pressure on the forefoot and cause that. You can get a traumatic bunion. So maybe a soccer player hits the ball the wrong way and, and damages the medial collateral ligaments and that great toe starts deviating laterally and they get a bunion from trauma. Many reasons. And you asked, why do some bunions hurt and some don't hurt? Well, 
the pain on a binding is typically over the medial eminence and they'll have redness and swelling sometimes and that won't happen unless there's pressure there. Painful bunions, I should say, probably don't happen if we're walking barefoot all the time, but it takes some pressure on that bunion to cause the pain. And so the first line of defense is appropriate shoe wear modification. And we talk about the principles in my office of appropriate shoes to include flat shoes, stiff-soled shoes, wide shoes, shoes that give you plenty of room for the forefoot. And often the patient will say, well, yeah, I wear the, the extra wide and that sort of thing. But to be honest, not all shoes are the same, and I don't care what the label on the box says. What I care, does that shoe fit that foot? And if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes the shoe is, is the problem or can make things worse. And we always try non-surgical treatment first with bunions, and that basically includes wide shoes, shoes wide enough for the foot. You can try padding of the bunions or toe spacers, but nothing's going to correct the bunion, but they will just accommodate that. But if they fail that and that's not working anymore, the next step can be surgery and you can refer them to that orthopedic surgeon that fixes bunions. All right. One last question. I see patients with foot pain commonly, and I've referred some to the foot clinic, and they come back with a diagnosis of metatarsalgia. What exactly is that? So metatarsalgia can be used by a lot of us as a, as a term that captures a lot of things. But in general, it's pain diffusely about the forefoot, usually plantarly underneath the metatarsal heads or underneath the metatarsal phalangeal joints, MTP joints. And so generally, metatarsalgia can be blamed for a lot of things at the forefoot. But classically, metatarsalgia is pain directly underneath the metatarsal heads. Usually that's almost like a stone bruise. As we get older, we lose the fat pad underneath the metatarsal heads and, and lose the cushioning there and maybe walking barefoot for a time or just increased activity causes pain directly underneath the metatarsal heads. That's the classic metatarsalgia. But it can be other things such as MTP joint synovitis or inflammation or arthritis, or there could be a Morton's neuroma, which is an interdigital neuroma in the third web space. A lot of those are blamed on just the broad category of metatarsalgia, but I try to be more specific with the patient and specifically metatarsalgia would be pain directly underneath the metatarsal heads with no other pathologies such as arthritis or synovitis of the joint or neuroma. All right, Dan, great information. We've been discussing foot and ankle pain with foot orthopedist and sports medicine physician, Dr. Daniel Rissman. Dan, thanks for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you very much. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week 